And so we see God bringing Gideon into the picture. Um, so it isn't, it isn't like, you know, Gideon just comes up and volunteers and says, hey, you know, pick me, God, I'll go do it for you. Uh, because where we first see Gideon, he's actually in a wine press uh, threshing wheat. Now, to explain really what's going on here, when you're threshing wheat, you're taking wheat and you're throwing it up in the air, waiting for it to be separated from the chaff so it'll blow it off and you can actually use, what the, good, the, use the good stuff uh, to make bread and everything. And what it looks like in a wine press is he's, he's down below ground level, down in like this little crevice rock area, and there's no wind in there. So he's kind of hiding down in here so the Midianites can't see him, and he's throwing up this wheat and everything. And it's like, dude, that, it's, it's actually not working. So when we first see Gideon, he's actually hiding. And God comes to him and says, hey, come. I want you to lead my people out of, out of here. I want you to lead them out of this oppression. Uh, Gideon, he's not too sure. He's kind of like, yeah, prove to me that you're God. And so God does a few things, proves to him that he is God. Uh, next thing we see is God tells him, hey, go tear, down this, go tear down this altar to the Baals. And Gideon's like, yeah, sure, uh, but I'm going to do it at night when nobody can see me because I don't want anybody to know it's me. So he goes, he does it, he does it at night. But people then find out, hey, uh, people aren't dumb. They do a little bit of investigating. They find out, okay, it was Gideon. Gideon did it. Uh, and then Gideon's father actually kind of defends him. And he goes, you know what? I'm going to change his name. His name's no longer going to be Gideon. I'm going to change it to a name that actually means let Baal defend himself. And so he changes his name. His name basically now means let Baal defend himself. And he's basically saying, hey, anybody else here who's worshiping the Baals and you try to do anything, we're going to kill you all, is basically what his father said. Uh, we get on to the next part, and then we see God telling Gideon, hey, put together an army, and I want you to lead this army against the Midianites. Uh, Gideon gathers an army of about 30,000 people. The Midianites have an army of about 120-something thousand, uh, a little bit more than that. Um, and God tells him, no, your army's too big. And he's like, wait, hold up, hold up now. I have 30,000 people. We're going up against 120,000. Um, us in Texas, we like to say, hey, remember the Alamo. That was 5,000 against 300. God's like, yeah, this is 120,000 against 30,000. Yeah, you have too many people. So... We're going to whittle down your army. So God has him do a few things to whittle down his army to where it's only 300 men. So it's 120,000 against 300. <laughs> Remember the Alamo, huh? So God's basically like, look, I want you guys to do this because I don't want you to take the credit for this victory. Obviously, you're not going to win a war 300 against 120,000. This victory is going to go completely to God. But right before this, uh, Gideon is still testing God. He's like, God, you know, I don't, I don't know if I can believe you. I want you to do, do this thing with this rag. I'm going to lay out this cloth outside. And if it's wet in the morning and the ground around it's dry, I'll believe you're God. God does that. Well, it's actually reversed. That's the second day. The first day, he's like, lay it out there. It'll be dry. Then it'll be wet. And so he keeps reversing it. God does all this stuff to prove himself. Uh, Gideon's still not sure, even after God does all these things. So Gideon goes and spies on the goes and spies on the military, goes and spies on the Midianites. He hears this story uh, about Midianites having a dream. And the Midianites say, okay, in this dream, there's this, this biscuit that comes rolling down into this giant tent, and it destroys the giant tent. And Gideon's like, okay, I'll believe that. I believe this. Okay. So basically they interpreted it that, hey, this, this biscuit, it's Gideon. Gideon's going to come, and he's going he's gonna to beat you all. So that's basically where we got left off last week is, Right after the story, then we see that uh, Gideon is leading his army 
it's at night. He has them all around. They're in this valley, and his army is all around this valley. They've got jars. They've got torches. He's like, okay, light your torches, break your jars, and then shout out for the Lord and for Gideon. Uh, they do that, and then the army down below them freaks out, and they start killing each other. And so it's like they didn't do anything. And so the first question we ask is, well, whose victory is this? Is this Gideon's victory or is this God's victory? Did Gideon really do anything? Um, but one interesting thing, we're going to get back to this later on near the end, is uh, Gideon told his men to say for the Lord and for Gideon. Well, did God ever tell him, hey, go, go, tell, go tell him, do this for Gideon? No, but we'll talk about that later. Uh, because it's something really important. So this is where we pick up um, in Judges 8. So we're going to go through Judges 8. We're going to go through all of Judges 8. We're going to try to do it real quick, and then we're going to look at Judges 9. This is where we get to uh, uh, Gideon's son. So here's where we pick up. Right after uh, they defeat the army, he's actually pursuing the rest of this army. So here in Judges 8, 4 through 7, it says, And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over he and the 300 men, who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, uh, please, give, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing Ziba and Zalmunna, uh, the kings of Midian. Okay, when it comes to names of the Bible, if you say them with confidence, even if you don't know how to pronounce them, people will believe you. Quick tip right there. So some of these I may be saying completely wrong, but if I say them with confidence, you guys may believe me. Uh, Okay, so the kings of Midian and the officials of Succoth and are the, uh, basically the, the, the officials of Succoth said, are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, well then, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will, fl- I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with the briar. So basically what is going on here is everybody is saying, hey, you haven't proven to us that you've defeated everybody yet. And they're basically questioning Gideon's manhood, saying, hey, prove to us that you're really a man and not this coward that, that we all know that you are. Uh, even at the beginning, the very beginning, when it first introduces us to Gideon, it tells us that he was the least of his father's sons. So it was basically like, yeah, this guy is not a, he's, he's pretty much a weakly man. Uh, and so everybody knows it, and they say, hey, prove to us that you're a man. Uh, so then we see the, what happens next. Uh, and he says, and from there, so he goes on to the next city, and he said, and there he went up to Peniel uh, and spoke to them in the same way, and the men of Peniel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the, to the men of Peniel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. So basically he comes to another place, which they as well said, hey, prove to us for, prove to us what you did. And they're like, and Gideon's like, you know what, once I prove to you what I did, then I'm going to come back, and I'm going to come back with a vengeance, and I'm going to do horrible things to you. Uh, so we see, pick up in verse 13, that we see then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harry's, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him, and he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. So here, between the verses, we see that, okay, Gideon went, he pursued all the rest of the men, he defeated the rest of the army of the Midianites, and now he's come back here to Succoth, and he's like, hey, you, young man, tell me who are all of your leaders. I want to know all of them. So he gives him a list, 77 men. Uh, next. That is way out of order. I don't know why Judges 7 is there, because we're in 8. I don't know why I put that there. 
and it's skipping. We're good. There we go. Okay. And he took the elders. So this is Succoth. And he says, and he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars with them, uh, taught the men of Succoth a lesson, and he broke down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the city. Um, does this sound like a guy who knows that God is the one who won his victory or who's relying on God to be his strength rather than being like, hey, you know what, I'm a, I'm a manly man. I'm not a coward. I mean, this, this sounds like a guy who's like, yeah, I'm not a coward, so I'm going to come back and I'm going to kill you all once I defeat these people. So then we pick up in 18, and he has the kings of, of the Midianites. And the kings of the Midianites basically challenge him with the same thing. Uh, so then he says, this is after he, after he kills the people of Succoth. Uh, and he says, then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, where are the men whom you killed in, at Tabor? They answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So then he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Uh, so two very important things. One, again, they challenged his manliness or his manhood. And they said, hey, if you're really a man, you're going to kill us yourself. Um, what is really interesting about this portion of Scripture uh, in chapter 8 versus chapter 7 or chapter 6, when we see Gideon, is we see God telling Gideon to do, th do certain things. We see him following God's directives. Here in chapter 8, God's not mentioned at all. Like, God didn't tell him to kill these two men. God didn't tell him to pursue them like this. God didn't tell him to kill the people of Succoth and Penuel. Uh, so it's really interesting if we pay attention to what is going on within this text and seeing, hey, there are certain things that are missing that were going on in the previous chapters. And so we can draw the conclusion that, hey, Gideon's, Gideon's starting to form this little bit of pride. He's like, hey, I got this victory, and uh, remember... Remember that dream he heard that, hey, this little biscuit that's going to go rolling down in there and stuff, it's, gonna, it, it's Gideon, and Gideon's going to destroy it. And so he's kind of taking this to heart. He's like, hey, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm kind of the big man on campus here. Uh, I did all this. This is what's, th this, is, this is all right. And now he's like, anybody who challenges that, he's like, no, I'm going to prove it. I'm going to prove that I'm a man to these people. Uh, and verse 22, so this is right after he defeats everybody. The war is done. Everything's going well. The people come to, the people of Israel come to Gideon. Uh, and they say, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Um, so he's basically already, he's stating what was already known in Israel is that in those days, Israel had no king. Uh, and that's what the people were asking him. Hey, be our king. And Gideon is telling him, no, God is king. And this is something that they've passed on from generation to generation ever since they came out of Egypt. We will not have a king. God is going to be our king. And so Gideon is saying something great here. Gideon is saying the right thing. Okay, so here, here's, here's really what's going on. Gideon is saying the church answer. He knows the church answer. Um, 
But have you ever noticed somebody who knows the church answer, but they don't live by that church answer? You're like, hold up, didn't you give the church answer, but you're doing something completely different? Uh, we're going to go on to the next, see what happens here in the next passage. So here in uh, verse 24 through 26, so this is right after they ask him, he says, no, okay, yeah, you gave the right answer. Good for you. But Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of the camels. So uh, we see all of these things that are actually quite kingly. Uh, purple was known as a royal color, yet they're giving him purple. They're giving him all this gold, all these shekels, all, all these different things, which is like, uh, aren't you taxing the people like a king would? Why are you doing kingly things if you say you're not a king? Uh, this next passage, what does Gideon do with all of these things that he's being given? Uh, in 27 through 28, and Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city uh, in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Okay, so this passage here is probably the most troubling passage within the story of Gideon. When we look at it, we're kind of like, well, what do you mean? It's the most troubling passage. I don't see him. Didn't he just kill a bunch of people? Well, yes. But uh, we're going to focus here on this thing right here that Gideon made, an ephod. Now, what is an ephod? Has anybody ever heard of an ephod? Like, what, what is this? Like, there, there's a handful that, that have heard of an ephod. Okay, so this is what an ephod is. Uh, it's, an, it's like an ornamental garment. Now, this garment here, this was worn by the high priest. Uh, there was only to be one, and it was only to be worn by the high priest, and it was worn by the one who would go and talk with God or speak with God. Now, if there was only supposed to be one, and it was only supposed to be made worn by the high priest, why would Gideon go and make this? And why would he keep it in the city or his, his, his dwelling area? Um, that's a really good question, and we're actually going to get to it. Uh, hint is, though, it's, it, it really comes down to his pride, is that Gideon says he doesn't want to be king, but he's doing a lot of kingly acts. Um, and we see a lot of pride and a lot of arrogance. Um, and also we do see is that what Gideon does is, that God commands him to do, is to tear down a lot of these idols, a lot of these altars and a lot of these idols. But uh, he's doing them outwardly. So we see him tear down all these, all, all these altars. But today, do we see a lot of altars or idols today? No, but are there still idols today? Yeah, but where do they dwell? I mean, within. They're within us. They're within our hearts. And so we see this example of Gideon of what he's doing is like, what, where, where are the true idols or the true altars really at? Are they really, are they really the ones that are out there to the bales and everything, or are they ones that are dwelling within Gideon's heart himself? That there are these 
altars here that he hasn't torn down, but that he still has erected in his heart. And he's like, you know what? I know that God has given me this directive and told me and told all of us that this is how we are to live and how we are to worship him. But you know what? I think I know better. I'm going to worship God the way I want to worship God. And so he makes an ephod and he puts it in his own dwelling area. So we're going to look at what happens, uh, what happens next after this. Uh, because, and then we see that this becomes a stumbling block to all of his, all of his people, to anybody in his household. Um, so there's a lot of crazy things that happen with Gideon right after this. Uh, we're going to pick up in verse 33. It says, As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Baroth their, their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubal, Jerubal uh, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done. So that name right there, that is the name Gideon's father gave to him, which basically means, hey, let, let Baal defend himself. And this is picking up in chapter 9. Now this is going to be Gideon's son, Abimelech. Uh, something real interesting about Abimelech here. We'll talk about it here in the passage. And it says, And his mother's relative spoke all these words. So Abimelech here, give a little bit of preface. Gideon has 77 sons. And they're all his own. Um, so, you know, things happen in the Bible that God lets happen, but he is not saying, hey, yeah, go do this. This is okay. When we see from the beginning that God creates one man and one woman, he's like, hey, this is how I expect marriage to be, is one man and one woman. Um, obviously, one woman did not give birth to 77 children. It is not physically possible. And somehow, Gideon just decides, hey, I'm just going to get all these, these wives, concubines, and stuff. I'm going to have 77 sons. And so this is a story about one of his sons. Uh, and so this is where it picks up, talking about Gideon's son. And it says, his mother's relatives spoke all these uh, words on behalf of, in the ears of the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-bareth, uh, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house in Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubal, 70 men on one stone. Who's 70, not 77. Um, but I mean... Is that really a big difference when you're talking about that many? Uh, so it says, But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubal, was left, for he hid himself, and all the leaders of Shechem came together and at Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar of Shechem. So one thing that is really interesting about uh, Abimelech. So Abimelech is one of 70 sons, and Abimelech's name actually means my father is king. So who is his father? Gideon. Well, what did Gideon say he wasn't going to do? Be king. Um, then why is his son's name? My father is king. I don't know. I don't know. It's one of those things where we know the right answer when we say things, but what is really going on in our hearts? Oftentimes we're kind of like, we say things to God like, you know what, God, you're king. But in our hearts, who is? You know? kind of like Gideon. You know what? Uh, I like to be king, so you know what? I'll be it, but I'll say the right things. It's okay. 
But there's a lot of things that start happening with Abimelech, his son. And his son wants to be king. He doesn't want any of his brothers to be or anything like that. Um, we're to pick up at verse 14. Uh, so his brother, his youngest one that hid and escaped, uh, comes to the people of Shechem, and he makes this little prophecy. And he starts talking about all these different trees. He says, okay, these people came to this tree, and they said, hey, be our king. And this tree is like, no, I'm actually busy with this. And then they go to another tree, and he's like, no, I'm busy with this. Uh, each tree was basically like, then he comes to a grapevine, and he's like, hey, grapevine, be our king. And the grapevine's like, no, I have wine to keep me busy. I'm not going to be your king. Um, and so every single one of the tree, the interesting fact about it is that the tree was busy with its own thing, like it was happy within itself and its own wealth. Somebody made a point that all of his sons seemed to be happy within what they were doing and just didn't worry about anything else, and they were all following the Baals, which was basically what it meant to follow a Baal, was to follow your own desires and do whatever you wanted, because that's basically what the Baals let you do. Uh, but we come up here right the, at the very end of of what his brother is, what his brother's prophesying. So he says, Then all these trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If no good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now this is a very important prophecy right here, especially at the end of this. So the bramble is, is uh, Abimelech himself. Uh, and we're going to see things about bramble and fire here in just a minute. Um, here in the later verses, it starts talking about, well, we'll read this one, then we'll go to the next one. Uh, so it says, if, if you then acted in good faith and integrity and Jerubbabel, so this is, uh, this is still his brother talking, and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out of Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. Let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. Uh, this next one we see what starts happening. It says, Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. So it goes on to say that God created this evil spirit between them because of the evil that they did to all of the sons of Gideon by having them all killed, and then also following all the Baals. And then so God causes issue between them. So now they start dealing treacherously with each other. They start betraying each other. They start doing things like, uh, laying it like, hey, I don't like you anymore, so what we're going to do is we're going to lay an ambush for you over here. And then Abimelech finds out and goes, well, I'm going to lay an ambush for you over here, and I'm going to kill all of you. I'm going to do this. So there's a lot of killing and a lot of ambushing and a lot of betraying. Um, it's like one of those novels of nothing but betrayal, where it's like, you don't, you don't have to go look for a novel. It's just right here in chapter 9. Just, everybody wants to betray everybody. It's kind of crazy. It's hard to keep up with. It's like, wait a minute, who betrayed who? Uh, but we see all the way down here, we're to jump all the way down to verse 52. Uh, and it says, Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower uh, to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called out quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword, kill me, lest they say of me a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through and he died. Um, Okay, so there are a lot of weird deaths that happen in the book of Judges. 
Somebody gets stabbed in the stomach, that's really fat. The sword gets left there, it covers it up. Somebody gets, you know, a, a little stake from a tent peg, like right into his head. And now somebody just takes this millstone, it's like this round stone that you use to grind wheat and everything, and they just toss it off the top of a tower and it falls on this guy's head. Um, so it's like, man, this is, a, this is the strangest book. Um, and the strangest things happen here. So right before this, Abimelech also goes to another, before this, he goes to a different tower. He puts a bunch of bramble there. He lights on a fire and he kills all the people in there. This one, he's doing the same thing. Brings a bunch of bramble, about to start a fire, but then this woman's just like, nope. It's like, oh, got him. And then he's like, no, don't let me die by a woman. And it's like, so then he has his, he has his little servant dude kill him. Um, but what is interesting, here's the interesting fact about him being like, don't let a woman kill me. Why doesn't he want a woman killing him? Well, because he considers it weak. Isn't that kind of like what Gideon was considering or being like, yeah, don't call me weak. And then you see his son being like, yeah, don't call me weak. You see the sins of the father starting to play into what the sons are doing. Um, but this is all interesting and all good, but what does God typically use with us when he's calling us and working on saving us? Does he typically use something that we think God should use or God should do? First uh, Corinthians tells us, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in, in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So this kind of comes full circle. Back to the beginning of Gideon. Gideon starts boasting in his victory, and he starts being like, hey, you know what, I'm going to be your king. But God said, no, don't, don't boast in this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wield down your army to 300 men so that you can only boast in me. Uh, do we ever catch ourselves ever boasting in our own salvation that, hey, guess what? I'm a great Christian. I do all the right Christian things. I'm, I'm good. I did all the right Christian things. But, but we forget it wasn't ourselves who saved us. It was God who used what we despise or what we don't like to save us. Let's look at the, I think this is the most important passage right here in Judges. We're going to look at a couple more verses and we'll wrap up here. Judges 10, 1 through 5, it really doesn't say much at all. We were like, why? how can this be important? Why is this even here? It says, after Abimelech there arose to save, so after Abimelech dies, there arose to save Israel, told of the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim, and he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 20, 22 years, and he, and he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havoth Jair, uh, to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Canaan. <sighs> Try and read that passage without laughing at some of the names. It's just, it just doesn't work. Um, I had to practice that quite a few times, so I just didn't start laughing at some of these names, like Dodo. Who calls your kid Dodo? Like, really? Uh, anyways, why is this so important? It doesn't tell us anything. It just says, okay, this person delivered this person, or this person was raised up, and they lived this long and delivered. Um, 
here are the key things that we, that we typically see that we don't see here. Uh, first of all, there's no crying out to God for salvation that we typically see. We typically see the people crying out for repentance. Um, there is no enemy named. So typically it's like, oh, it's the Midianites, it's the Canaanites, it's this person, it's that person. That's not named here either. Uh, so who is God saving Israel from? And who is God saying Israel needs to be saved from? Well, quite frankly, it's themselves. Because it keeps telling us, but Israel keeps going back and serving the Baals. So who really do they need to be saved from? And every single one of these judges that God is raising up is an example of the judge who he will raise up eventually, who will permanently save us from the sin that is within us, from, our, from ourselves. So we'll look at a couple of passages here real quick that are going to, I think, bring this all together and say, hey, this is how we can relate to these, story and, these stories and judges. Uh, so it says, therefore God gave them up. This is, this is the issue that they were having, that Israel was having at this time. It's, therefore God gave them up to, their, to the lust of their hearts, to the impurity, to the dishonor of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth, truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Um, they worship themselves. They are the creature. 128, uh, Romans 128-32, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not to be done. So then it goes through this whole list about everything that they just started doing. Uh, we can go through that list and we can look at that list and we say, hey, you know what? Uh, I kind of do these things. And so was Israel at the same time. But this next one, after going through this list of, hey, this is, this is what we do. So I'm going to make a distinction here. The verse before, when it listed everything, that defined us before God. This is who we were. This was the definition. This is what this is who we were when we follow the bales of our hearts before Christ intervenes and saves us. This is what Christ does. It says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ, Christ died for the ungodly. We were ungodly. This is what we did, just like Israel. This is who we followed. Uh, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. So while, we out, while we're out there acting crazy, doing horrible things, following the bales, betraying people, doing whatever. This is an example. This is who we are. Uh, God intervenes while we were bad. At the right time, while you were horrible, God intervened. It says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we were reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So, unlike we see with the story of Gideon, is that God brings, him back, brings us back to him. In the story of Gideon, we see Gideon just kind of like, hey, you know, God called the people to him, but we still kind of wandered off. And then there at the very end, at, at Judges 10, 1 through 5, we don't see the people calling out for God. But it says, but God at the right time calls us to himself. Uh, and here's now how we were, we were called, unlike Gideon, who decided, hey, I'm going to live how I want to live. This is how we're called to live. 
all these attributes here, this is how you are now defined because you are now in God. This is what God says of you. He tells you to live this way, but then he also defines you this way. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, this is Paul talking, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. So he says, you've been called this way, walk this way, this is who you are. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain a unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your, to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So unlike the story of Gideon or Abimelech, we see them seeking their own, seeking vengeance. Hey, don't, don't say I'm weak. So I'm going to seek vengeance against that. What does God tell us to do? Be weak, for he is strong. We are weak because God is strong, and he uses what we consider, I don't know, today's terms we call it lame or whatever, but God uses that to save us. And he calls us to live for him. Uh, unlike the examples of Gideon or Abimelech, who are like, you know what, we're just going to do what we want. We know the church answers, but we're just going to do what we want. Uh, so I guess that's one of the challenges for us today in conclusion is, hey, even though we're here at church, do we know all the church answers? Yeah, sure. We know the church answers. We could sit here. We can go to our discussion questions. I can answer all these things correctly. But what does my life look like once I leave church? What does it look like Monday through Saturday? Does it look like I actually follow Christ? Does it look like that he came in, interfered, and pulled me out of this disaster that I am? It's something we have to ask ourselves and say, hey, am, am I just doing the church thing? And that's pretty much what Gideon was doing. He did the church thing, but then he still followed all these other things, just like his son. Uh, with that, we'll conclude, and we got a, you got a few minutes for discussion questions. So.